Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. I was told a tiny little thing. I was like 13. Normally, like he would fold the belt with the buckle in his hand and then hit me with the loop end of it. But he was so enraged that he was just like beating on me with, with the buckle side. Oh. And I was like, I had blood streaming all over my face. So I finally stood up to him. I turned around and I just socked it to him and knocked his glasses off his face. He called the other adults that were out witnessing and then said, oh, uh, my son has been possessed by a demon. Uh, he attacked me for no reason. Oh. And he just started beating on me. They all came, pinned me down on the ground, and carried me off like six people because I was fighting and screaming and biting every step of the way. And then they brought me into this uh, solitary confinement room that they had where all the windows were like uh, screwed shut with boards of wood. So they brought me in there and then they were kneeling on me for eight, nine, ten hours, eleven hours. Everything that would come out of you in that time came out. Mm. Maybe about two or three weeks later, one of my friends, he snuck the key while everyone was out. And then he got like some backpacks and some clothes. And then we made a run for it. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. As always, if you're only listening and you want to see our faces, you can go to our YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can join in on the conversation, leave those words of encouragement for our guests who are coming on and bravely sharing their story, become an advocate, a subscriber of the channel. It helps boost the algorithm and helps more people find it and see this work that we are trying to do. So today's guest, he reached out. He is from the Children of God cult. We've mentioned this before with Daniela Mestinek-Young. We've done a few episodes with her. She's awesome. And now we're hearing from a male's perspective. So he grew up in India on a commune, and we're going to be talking about the ins and outs of this sex cult that is essentially... It's like purity culture flipped on its head. There's a lot of heavy stuff in this one, guys. So just take care when you're watching this. And we're going to talk about how he escaped when he was 15 and all of the hardships that came with essentially getting thrown out into the the real world, if you will, and trying to find his way. So thank you so much for joining us, Phil. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Yes, and you also wrote a book called The Monsters That Kiss You Goodnight, and that details your experience growing up in the cult, right? That is correct. My book actually, originally, it was going to be an autobiography, but then I uh, made a consequent decision against that because I think that there were so many things that happened that are like uh, potential lawsuits, uh, dangers, potential defamation, uh, potential also harming other victims. So I deliberately created a character called Tommy Luca Engel, who is based on me mm. and the stuff that I did and I went through. And I only deliberately kept the name of my stepfather uh, real in the book. And it also says that in the, in the opening chapter because uh, I wrote the book originally to uh, finance my struggle to fight the statutes of limitations in Switzerland and Germany. I went 
eight years ago to the police for the first time and uh, said with my own words to the police that I was severely sexually assaulted by both my mother and my father until the age of about six in India and um, lots of other horrible things that we will probably get into later. And uh, yeah, they said, we can't help you. Uh, the statutes of limitations has expired on your case. So I tried in Germany and there was the same thing there as well. So that uh, led me to actually seek out other cult members. And then I found these Facebook chats. And then I found another victim of my stepfather. And she also wrote, um, how do you say that in English? I'm sorry, I've been speaking too much German today. Uh, she wrote a statement. <laughs> She wrote a statement also uh, accusing my stepfather of uh, severe sexual abuse. Mm. And we took that as well to Germany. And again, it was the same thing. And it was like uh, the statute of limitations was just expired by like not even like a year or two years. So it was like really horrible for us, you know. And uh, so I began writing this book and then I began doing interviews in German here in Europe uh, to like the national TV stations and telling my story. And yeah, the fight still goes uh, My parents are still walking free, as are many other perpetrators. Hence, that's why I called the book The Monsters That Kiss You Goodnight. Because I mean, that's like the two most horrible things put together. That's like uh, somebody who kisses a child goodnight who's supposed to be their protector, their guardian. Yeah their spiritual guidance throughout their life and then what are they doing they are becoming the very thing that children are afraid of which is the monster under the bed so i think that uh, i don't know it just came to me one day i was thinking of a title for my book and i was thinking of all these different ideas for titles and then it just sprung on me the monsters that kiss you goodnight i was like that's a damn good title so i just stuck with that yeah yeah Wow, I'm so sorry that you had to deal with that. And unfortunately, I haven't read your book yet, but it's added to my list. And for those who are interested, we will put a link to the book in the description below as well. So you guys can check it out. So I guess let's just dive into your story. Where would you like to start when it comes to your childhood? Should we maybe give a brief overview of the children of God so people kind of understand the the rules around the community? Uh, sure, I, I made myself some notes here. Uh, so that you guys out there watching can have um, a rough idea of what it was like. Uh, so when you were a child, there was the main philosophy was every adult is God's authority, no questions asked. And I mean that literally. Like if you talked back to an adult or uh, said, oh, I don't believe in something or I don't think something's right, there was immediate beatings, like immediately, like smacking on the face was the bare minimum if it was something like outright heresy like saying oh i don't think jesus is coming back or i think moses david is a false prophet uh you could get like beaten in front of the entire commune for something like that or worse like uh yeah maybe like tied to a chair and put in a room with no light with tape over your mouth and uh the kind of punishments that i saw and also experienced growing up I dare say uh, Guantanamo Bay could learn a thing or two from. I, I, I compare it to crimes against humanity. That's what I went through as a child. What's also a very interesting thing is the whole aspect of lying. So within the community, as a child, of course, you were always expected to tell the truth no matter what. But however, for example, if we were supposed to be questioned by the police or by grandparents or 
outsiders would ask us, oh, what's it like in the children of God? Of course, you never said, oh, my parents are having sex with me or we don't go to school or so we were always forced to lie. So we're having like this duality. We're growing up with this duality inside of us where um, on one side, we're always supposed to tell the truth and be honest and everything. And at the same time, we're trained, we're drilled, like brainwashed to come up with these outrageous stories. Like uh, until I was in my mid thirties, I was always telling my my employer, my wife, my lovers, my, uh, yeah, my friends, oh, I grew up as a missionary in India, or sometimes I would say my mother was working as a diplomat, uh, translating in the German embassy or all sorts of nonsense like that. But I mean, of course, the reality was, uh, yeah, very different. Mm -hmm. um, the third thing I would maybe point out is, of course, uh, the spiritual leaders, Moses, David, and of course, his entourage, they are the word of God absolute. So they're on the same level as like Muhammad, as Jesus Christ himself. So there was absolutely no question. And for example, if somebody from Moses, David's entourage came to our commune, that person had like the highest status in the, the commune. So their word was absolute. So if they said, oh, we're doing this or that, there would be just no question. And if someone like that told you as a child, oh, go here or go there or do this or do that, you would be absolutely terrified to death to disobey them. So the leader, just so everyone kind of understands, he started in the US in the 70s, right? A bit earlier, actually. A bit earlier, 60s? Late 50s, early 60s, if I remember correctly. It started in uh, Huntington Beach in California, and he was preaching to the hippies and the, well, the beatniks at the time before the hippies emerged. I think it was a Christian revival, but also at the same time accepting people that are like uh, outside of society, because of course, that's a, that's an easy market <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, you can you can be groovy, you can love rock music, and you can have your hair long and be flower power and all that. And you can still love Christ. And you can still do good in the world. So I mean, of course, that sounds very appealing. Not me, but <laughs> Yeah, of course. And it seemed like because of the, the timing of this, when it all came out, the free love movement and everything like that, he started to say, well, God is love and love is sex. Everyone should just be able to have God's love, aka sex. And then that sort of translated into children as time progressed. So that's where these ideas came from. Because I don't think anyone, I mean, my own personal opinion, I don't think anyone would want to join a cult who's having sex with children just on their own. I think it's that slow progression, right? Well, I, I actually, I had this very same question from a, a German interview I just did recently. And it's, I think it's actually, it's, uh, it's quite a, quite a bit more complex and yet also very simple at the same time. You attract outsiders through your music, through, oh, we live in a community and we're all sharing and we're all like, you know, all loving God together. And then uh, it's not like you go onto the street and the first thing you say is, oh, yeah, we fuck our children. No, you say, oh, we're free love and we're all sharing and we're, you know, we're God's children. And like all this uh, stuff, like the book of Davidito and all this other doctrines, you know, the more hardcore stuff. That wasn't available to just anybody. Like you had to be a full disciple. They had like different tiers, right? Got it. So like when you were, when you first met the cult, then you would be a so-called turf supporter. 
I think that's what they call them. And then from the, uh, or you'd be like a, a supporter, turf supporter. And then you'd have another status, which would be like, you know, you'd come and visit and hang out and then maybe sleep over. But also like they were very strict about the whole sexual thing. Like you couldn't like just come off the street, join the children of God and start having sex with everybody. There was like also a waiting period of like six months where you would also mm. be like tested on your beliefs and see if you're really up for it. And of course, like if you go through all this rigmarole of joining something, right? And you go through all this hassle and you give up all your earthly belongings because that's also part of this for six months. You have to like sign away your inheritance, sign away everything you own, empty your bank accounts, give it all to the cult. So. By the time you're done through with the six months of waiting period, in some cases it was even like a whole year, then, yeah, you're pretty fucked after that. So basically you have no possessions, no money on your bank. Um, you're probably in some dirt hole in the middle of India or Thailand or wherever the fuck they send you because they will send you somewhere where, you know, you're at the complete mercy of the commune. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, you know, when we love each other, we all love each other. And this love extends to everybody. And it's more like that. It's very conniving. So then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're like, well, I don't think I should have sex with children, but everyone else is doing it. And I mean, maybe the children want to and everyone's saying it's natural. And actually, it's the outside world teaching us that this is not normal. So you can maybe follow me how even somebody who would be like in a normal situation would be like, oh, if I see a pedophile, I'll beat him to death. And then six months later, he's abusing children himself because he's been transformed right. into this, into something that's larger than himself or herself, but as a member of, of a group and not an entity anymore. And I think that's kind of what cults do is they rob you of your own personality, of your own ability to decide right or wrong because the decision right or wrong is taken from you. Yeah. And it's like, we're going to alleviate you of all the decision-making. All you have to do is follow God, follow our simple rules, go witnessing, uh, be a good end-time prophet, and everything else, all you have to do is just trust the teachings of our prophet and what we tell you to do. That's so easy, isn't it? You know, if you're uh, just removed of all responsibility of yourself, you know? Yeah, they take away your individuality, their your own standards. They tell you how to think, how to believe, how to act until eventually you're not the person that you were. If it's if it's a case where you're joining and if it's a case where you're born into it, you really don't have a chance because it's just always your reality and it's what you know. So let's talk about yeah. your childhood in this group. Um from when I was very small, I was in India. Uh, I was actually born in the Netherlands, uh, and my mother met my stepfather, Stephen, and he said God told him to go to India to be a missionary there. And my earliest memories of India were always like going from one cheap motel to the next, always being super hot. Uh, super thirsty because uh, we wouldn't drink the tap water and my parents would never buy like a bottle of water or buy something, a cold soda or something like that because no money. So we're just, you know, drinking boiled, I would take tap water, boil it. And then of course in India, it's like 35, 40 degrees hot with 80% humidity. So you just, as a kid, you're just constantly just waiting for the next little bit of food and for the water to be just barely drinkable so you can drink it. So like my earliest memories were just, 
I would just say hell on earth. Yeah. The food was like, like very sparse. As a child, one of the things that were like really engraved into my upbringing was you eat what is set before you. So whatever rubbish that they provisioned, like if, you know, half rotting vegetables, meat that was kind of on the verge of decay. I just remember eating so much garbage growing up, like, and also me already like at the age of maybe three, four, five years old, uh, we're having to participate in the cooking and stuff like that. And sometimes my mom would be like cracking an egg open and smelling it. It's like, yeah, I could try eating it, you know, like that. Or uh, eating bananas when they were already more, more or less black. And I mean, like, I just, I just remember eating so much revolting stuff. And if you refuse to eat that, you would just get beat the fuck up, you know? And I remember like, uh, when I was maybe three, four years old, my brother, he was then like one and a half. And we're talking about a fucking baby here, like a fucking toddler. Right. And kids at that age, you know, they don't like something, they spit it out. And Stephen, he would just get into this fury of rage and just pick my brother up like this and just start fucking beating him with a belt. You know I mean? We're talking about a kid that's like this fucking big, you know? Oh, my gosh. And I'd be crying and begging him to stop. And my mother would be like, stop. And then sometimes even Stephen would lash out at her with the belt and just like smack her across the face. It's like, uh, don't come between me and the wrath of God, basically, you know? So I just remember us kids, like Stephen would just beat us fucking black and blue sometimes, you know? Was Stephen your stepfather? Yeah, exactly. That's why I also call him by his real name in the book, because I'm publicly shaming him. I don't give a fuck. He can sue me. So uh, eating garbage, drinking hot water, uh, never having any like proper clothes because all our clothes were like what my mother would often do is like she'd take adult clothes. Right. And then she just like cut them up and then re-sew them so that they would fit us. And then like sometimes if my grandparents would come to India like once every year or sometimes every two years. Uh, then they would bring us like nice clothes. And then those clothes were like religiously kept on the side. Like we were never allowed to wear them unless we were like visiting like sponsors or my grandparents or something like that. And, um, on the, actually on the last interview I did, somebody commented on YouTube. It's like, oh yeah, I don't believe that you could have gotten beat up and black and blue and all that because then your grandparents must have seen something or noticed something, the, the marks, the bruises. But that's the thing. Um, that's the next step I'm I'm coming to is that the cult was really, really militant about showing pristine, happy, well-behaved children, well-behaved children. Right. And the thing is, when they knew that, like, for example, my grandparents would be coming, then, I mean, I would still get spanked, but maybe not as hard or maybe he wouldn't hit me in the face or, you know. He'd hit me somewhere where uh, you could, you wouldn't see it. I also knew, like, if my grandparents were coming, he would also be a little bit less draconian because, you know, he would also be scared of my grandparents finding out something. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he would be a little bit extra nice. But, like, when we would be sit hanging around with my grandparents and then I would, like, like, for example, I remember one time we were at this hotel in New Delhi. And uh, my my grandmother, she wanted to provoke my father because she always liked doing that. And she knew that he said, I don't eat pork. But then she's like, oh, but you should let your kids try pork because it's delicious. And she had like this pork sausage on the, on the plate. So then she just like looked at me and just gave me a, a piece of just like, like just say, open your mouth. And I just kind of shoved it in my mouth and I was chewing it. And then Stephen was looking at me like I, I had committed the ultimate sin. And I just remember thinking, 
fuck, as soon as they leave, he's going to beat me black and blue just for disobeying him because uh, obviously I should have spat it out and say, oh, I don't like pork, but I was like defiant at that age too. And I was like, well, as long as my grandma's here, she's uh, my my stepfather's not going to do anything, you know? Mm-hmm. And every time they came to India, every time I was always like, I was trying to find the courage to say, grandma, can you please take me back to Germany? This guy is a wacko, you know? But uh, yeah, I was so scared of him and also like, yeah, I was also scared of not being believed too, because yeah. you know, yeah, when you're that small, you know, what I mean, I was like what four, five, six years old, seven years old. That's not the age where you where you think of confrontation with somebody who's like you know a hundred kilos heavier than you. You know what I mean? So, of course, you're a yeah. child. And something that I fo- I found interesting about the children of God is that within this communal living, you. And I want to hear your experience. This is what I know from speaking to Daniela, that you don't really call your own parents your parents. It's everyone is everyone's kid and everyone is everyone's parent. Did that, was that the same for you? Absolutely. When I was five years old, my parents sent me off to a completely different commune, a commune that was more child raising orientated because they had like different communes. I had like fundraising communes, whereas mostly like adult women going to prostitute themselves. And I guess at some point they realized this wasn't a really good environment for children. So they had children in another commune that would be taken care of by mostly men or women that were not so keen on prostitution or women that were, let's say, um, not physically attractive enough, I would guess. So, uh, and my mother, she was uh, a very big FFer. So uh, I have three siblings as a result of the FFing. I'm the oldest. Flirty fishing, you mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I was shipped off to this other commune and they, they made it sound like, oh, you're going to be with lots of other kids and it's always going to be playing and blah, blah, blah. But when I got there, I just realized this is going to be hell on earth. Like the first night, like almost every other kid was crying and every kid that continued to cry after they were told it's lights out, they would just take them one by one, drag them to the middle of the room in front of everyone else and just beat them until they stopped crying. Oh, wow. And I mean, this went just on. And I mean, I didn't get beaten that night because I was just too terrified to, to even cry. I was just like frozen, you know, it's just like, what the fuck? And, uh, yeah, that place was hell on earth. Uh, I remember like once I was, I mean, I, I was like five, right. And I was like five years old helping folding laundry and doing stuff. And I think I like knocked a pile of clean laundry on the floor and the, one of the women, she's like ironing. And she just turns around, sees me, and then just bends me over and just smacks me on the back with, with the red hot iron, you know? And lucky, oh. lucky for me, I was like, I had like a t-shirt on or something like that. I mean, it burned like hell, but I mean, it was such a short contact that it was just like searing pain, but it didn't really like do a lot of damage. And, and then I think she also like realized, Oh, what the fuck am I doing? And then she just kind of like pushed me aside. And then, um, yeah, then that was it. Yeah, there was just like this constant terror of when I was growing up, you're always terrified that if you said something that somebody else would interpret as a lie, you'd get beaten. You would get beaten for being disobedient. You'd get being beaten for being too late or not getting up in time or not making your bed properly or like you'd be downstairs doing laundry and then you'd go upstairs with some laundry and you'd bring the laundry into a room and then you'd be outside in the hallway walking empty handed. And another adult would be like, hey, what are you doing loitering here in the hallway? You're supposed to be downstairs. I'll just smack you across the face, you know? Mm -mm. And I was like five, six years old, you know? 
I'm like, dude, I'm just doing my job. And it's like, oh, you're talking back. Boom, another one, you know? Oh. So we're just getting beaten every fucking day. And I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure many other cult survivals will corroborate this, you know? That's awful. Uh, yeah. So basically that was, that was, that was the life, you know, getting up at five, five thirty in the morning. Uh, and then we'd have like these like end time drills. We'd all have to stand, you know, and with our backs and our shoulders straight. And then they'd sing like, you know, uh, songs about the end time and we're the end time army and it's all very, very military, you know, so always having to salute and like stand in line and yeah, yes, sir, yes, sir, you know, and like little fucking kids, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like I, I laugh because it, it's, it's, uh, I, I sometimes I say to my wife, it's like, I, I laugh sometimes because I'm not sure anymore. Sometimes like I find it hard to fathom that I actually as a human being went through this. Yeah. Because when you go through such crass experiences, um, I don't know about other survivors, but me, like, I tend to see myself in the third person. Mm-hmm. And then, because when you're seeing yourself in the third person, you're distancing yourself, then you start to sometimes doubt, did I actually experience that? Or or is it just me somehow? I don't know, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what's really dangerous because then, like, for example, this this very sentence I just said right now, then, like, if the lawyer of my father found it, he's like, yeah, you see, he's even not sure of himself anymore, and that's just fucking bullshit, because I know that shit happened. Yeah. But that's, like, a defense mechanism that we build up, you know, to kind of protect ourselves, because, I mean, Daniela, she was telling about, you know, uh, people killing themselves, and I did some research on that, too, and it's, like, between one and two people in ten. So, I mean, we're talking about almost two people per ten survivors that are dead now, or, you know suicide drug uh drug overdose dissociation is so common among cult survivors because like you said it's a safety mechanism if you can distance yourself from the trauma it's it's something that just happens in your body usually you can't even control it you just separate yourself in hopes to not shut down and so Mm. it's extremely common it's i've it's happened to me as well yeah i i i heard a little bit about your story Mm, i my my heart goes out to you if that's of any use. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I I tend to be really disassociated. Like uh, I I've I mean I, I literally every single fe- I have a lot of female friends also because I'm very outspoken about my abuse. So a lot of women also end up telling me about their abuse that they don't even like not even their husband knows about or not even their best friends knows about. But because I'm like an easy target because I'm so disassociated, like a woman can tell me the most horrible things that happened to her. And I just sit there and I'm like, okay, I guess that's what happened. And it doesn't, it doesn't face me at all. Like, uh, I used to get beaten so much as a child, like they would beat us until we stopped crying. And then, like, the first time I cried when I was sober was, like, two years ago at the funeral of my mother-in-law. Mm. And then it all just came out because I, I loved her, like, more than my own mother. And then and then it just dawned on me, like, uh, we're, you know, standing there in the graveyard uh, spreading her ashes. And then, like, the tsunami just hit me. And I, 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 I didn't stop crying for, like, three days. Wow. Like, I was doing night shift. So I'd, like, I'd get in the truck. Uh, go to the first place of delivery and just be like driving for like two hours on the highway, just sobbing my eyes out. And mm-hmm. I liked it. It was good, you know, because before the only feelings I had as an adult was indifference, rage, and, and anger. 
yeah. and maybe love occasionally, but, you know, like towards my children or people I like, you know, but uh, I was completely and utterly unable to feel empathy for other people. And to a large degree, it's still like that. But uh, it's like, for me, it's rational. So when I hear these stories, it's like I'm, I'm reading a newspaper or I'm watching it tv or something like for me it doesn't really register that this actually happened to that person so maybe it's also easy for people to tell me that because they they see that i'm not like traumatized or not affected by it yeah and i'm not really i i it doesn't affect me at all uh but i can rationalize it and then i can like say how i deal with my past or with i mean i was also raped by my stepfather and by my mother um, until I was about six years old. Mm. Uh, the book of Davidito, I'll get into that in a second. Uh, so this book was uh, published around uh, 1982, I think, and they discontinued it in 1986, which is basically when my youngest sibling was born. More on that later. So um, my stepfather basically... Uh, when I was already a toddler, he would molest me while changing my diaper and do very, very disgusting things to me. And uh, he would like read the Bible in the morning and he would be naked. And then he would like put me on top of him and he would like masturbate himself or ask me to do it or even like try to force my head down. Mm. Uh, put his cock in between my my legs or even try to put it inside me and um, all the time saying, Oh, you're so beautiful. And you make daddy so happy. And, you know, and once my mother saw this, one of my earliest memories, and she was like saying to him in German, it's like, Oh, that's disgusting. What are you doing? And he's like, Oh, I'm making love to my son. Like the prophet said. And she says, uh, no, I don't think this is what the prophet meant when he said we should make love to our children what you're doing is sodomy that's a, a sin you know and um yeah then later she went to one of the shepherds of the commune and said uh she's really disturbed by my stepfather doing that to her son but not because he was having sex with me as a child it, for her it was disturbing that it was two men uh, right that was her problem because she was also doing this to me too. Like uh, she would have offered to have cuddle time with me. So she'd be very, she would be completely naked. And then she tried to stimulate me or push my head down between her legs and tell, Oh, give mommy a kiss or put your finger here and do this or touch mommy's breast. Oh my gosh. You know, trying to have actual full on sex with me. And, um, when I try to like run away or say I'm not interested, it's like, no, no, you need to learn how to like this. This is good for you. And I remember like my earliest memories is my mother like trying to um, masturbate me when I was asleep, when I was putting me to bed because Moses David said that his babysitter uh, did that to him too. And uh, a little boy's penis uh, is... Um, not meant to be pulling the foreskin back. That's something that happens naturally over time, over years. 
So uh, if you forcibly pull the foreskin back of a little boy, it really hurts and it also bleeds and stuff. And so I'm like trying mm -hmm. to push my mother away and like, hey, uh, this is I'm I'm crying and everything. And she's like, no, no, no. And she's pushing my hands back. It's like, no, you need to learn to like this. This is good for you. And like that, you know, that's the kind of memories I have from both my parents, like the earliest memories. But the thing that fucks me up the most is that like I was basically spared all of that sexual abuse after the age of five or six because I was a boy. So once the shepherd went to Stephen and said, oh, no, you can't have sex with your son. This is uh, this is wrong. This is a uh, sodomy. This is, uh, you know, a, a, a deadly sin. Uh, then he called me into the room and he was like, uh, yeah, we can't do this anymore because it upsets your mother. But if you if you want to continue doing it, if you like having cuddle, he called it cuddle time, you know, if you like having cuddle time with me, then we can continue. But we can't tell your mother or anybody else. And I'm like, no, I, I don't, you know. And yeah, then he was like, yeah, I'm. I'm sad. I'm disappointed. I thought you loved me. And you, that that's what I find so fucked up shit like that. Oh, you know? So manipulating. Like, yeah. Like basically, yeah, you're going, I'm going to do something really horrible to you. And then if you say no, then you're the bad guy because I'm actually just trying to do something nice to you. Yeah. And yeah. And I actually felt bad for saying no at the time, you know, and I, and then, then I left and I was like, well, maybe I should. And I was like, yeah, but I really don't want to this. I, I mean, for me, it was really a very unpleasant thing and i didn't like touching his penis or him ejaculating and all that for me it was really disgusting you know and i mean yeah at that age you you're not uh sex is like the farthest thing of your mind you want to be a fireman and play with legos and go outside and poke bugs with sticks you don't want to have sex with your stepdad you know it's just, it's just no kid wants that and that's what also what i find um really hard to fathom is that that adults just because a cult or a commune says okay we're doing this that it, it doesn't occur to them that that hey i mean like i have three kids myself and the thought of even i don't i if it, it's it's so revolting i can't even like speak it you know yeah like I, under no i i I, I can't even put the words in my mouth. That's how, how revolting I find just the idea of it. And so how, how could my parents, or especially my mother, who is my biological mother, who actually had me in her body and brought me into this world, how can she just turn a blind eye to that or even actively participate? It's, it's for me, it's just unim unimaginable. I mean... To be fair, my parents have never met my children to this day, you know, and my oldest is now almost 18. So this is how far I went out of my way to make sure that my parents never, ever fucking lay a hands on my own children, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, it just goes to show also the mind control manipulation of the leaders. And they were following this book of Davidito, right, that was written to show people how to do this with children. Well, the book of Davidita was more as a guideline of how to raise your children, and the sexual part was, of course, a very big part of that book. I mean, there was also even actual photographs of Davidito getting, like, sucked off by uh, Karen Zerbe and his other babysitter, uh, who he killed later. Jeez. Uh, I'm sure you know the story, what happened with him. Yeah. Davidito killed his, uh, his babysitter and then killed himself. Yeah. That's what happened to him. Uh, yeah. And like, 
all of that stuff happened like uh, a long time before I actually had uh, re-contact with any other cult survivors because I was actually one of the, I was actually the youngest ex-cult member to ever get excommunicated. I left the cult when I was 13 and I was officially excommunicated at that age too. Okay. And this was in 1994. So from 1994, basically until 2018, I had no fucking clue about how other survivors were doing because all the other survivors, they were like all leaving the cult together and like getting their own little apartments and forming little groups and little, you know, whatever. And I had no fucking clue about any of that because I, I just left, you know? And then when I was 15, I became a street musician. And then once in a while, I'd like bump into other people. I'd be like, oh, because you, you, you see that look, you know, you, you, this is like this look that other call people have that you just recognize each other. You have like this aura about you, uh, call it psychotic or whatever. No. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just, you just, you look at somebody's like, you are the children of God or weren't you? And they're like, how did you know? It's like, yeah, man. And also the the accent gives it away too, because like none of us actually spoke like proper like American or British English or Australian English. We all had like this kind of cultish, I call it, which is what I speak too, because uh, my mother tongue is, I would say, cultish. I don't consider it to be a proper English. Right, because you didn't have any education aside from what was given to you within the commune. So basically, I was like a German kid growing up in an American cult with American traditions. Well, yeah, American way of thinking, of talking, of expression. So I consider myself to be like the most American, non-American that's never been in America, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. It's funny. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I yeah. really want to get into what it was like with you leaving. But first, I just want to get a little bit more context as far as your mentality growing up in this cult. I wonder if you also took in the doctrine and you were a true believer. Obviously, you didn't want to be there and things were upsetting to you, of course. But were you still kind of under the umbrella of believing the doctrine that they're telling you? Not at all. I was from a very young age. I was not convinced of any of it. Mm. Like everyone, like I guess everyone was trying to out spiritualize each other. And I always thought I was a bit too stupid or something. Like we always had this big picture of Jesus in most of the dining rooms and in, in every commune and every adult and every other teenager would be like, Oh yeah. Every time I walk by Jesus, he's like smiling at me and waving and speaking to me. And I'm like looking at the pictures like, that never happens to me. I guess I'm stupid or something. And then also, like, when we were growing up, there's, like, so much terror surrounding the whole religion that, like, you weren't allowed to say anything that contrary. But, like, when we'd have these big prayer meetings, I'd always, like, keep my eyes open and spy for, like, another child who also didn't give a shit. And then we'd be, like, making fun of all the idiots babbling and speaking in tongues and frothing out of the mouth and having spiritual convulsions on the floor. And then I'd, like, try to find another kid and I'd be like, oh, this other kid thinks that's really fucking stupid, too. So then the next prayer meeting, I try to sit next to them, you know, mm -hmm. and then basically just be making fun of them. Like, you know, it was like, you know, yeah, making like weird faces and whatever. At a young age, you knew you didn't want to continue in the group. And at what point did you decide you needed to get out? Oh, yeah. I, when I was already in India, like that's actually one of the reasons that when we finally came to Germany, I literally kissed the, the ground at Frankfurt Airport. And I'm talking literally like I actually got down on my knees and I kissed the fucking ground because I was just so happy to be out of India because I knew as a white boy in Europe, 
I might actually have stand a chance of survival of not getting kidnapped and being sold to wow. us as a slave or I mean, you know, in India is fucking horrible shit. So yeah, I was very already at the age of like seven, eight, nine years old. I was like, fuck this. I want out. You know, I want to go to live with my relatives or my grandma or even, uh, and I was just biding time until I was big enough, like physically big enough to just stand up to my father and just, yeah, give him the beating of his life for all the shit he did to me, you know? My wife always says, uh, you should love your children and, and your wife more than you hate your father. And she's right about that. So, Well, I think it's okay to have both simultaneously because that's also something that we learn growing up in cults is forgiveness and don't don't think about the past and don't dwell on it and all of that. And I know that there is merit to that. And also, it's okay to be really angry and also love someone else at the same time, in my opinion. I think actually this whole Christian doctrine of forgiving those who wronged you and uh, turning the other cheek to your oppressor, it's very, very dangerous because that's basically uh, the oppressors teaching their victims to not retaliate under any circumstances and to brainwash them into saying, oh, yeah, it's been a long time ago. You should forgive and let live and let go and all that. And I know a lot of other like victims that in between they're even like contacting their their um uh, perpetrator thank you in german it's peiniger i don't know why my brain keeps going to german mm -hmm. yeah they so they're contacting their perpetrators and they're like oh i want to confront you about what you did to me in the past and then they hug it out and they're like oh i'm so sorry and i mean me like i i pretended for the longest time to be nice to my parents and and they're completely oblivious to that. I think that yeah. just shows how, how fucked up they are in the head. They probably still think they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, trauma can do some crazy things to us. And it's it's hard to work through. And people deal with it in different ways. And I think it's okay to figure out in the ways that you can deal with your trauma and work through it. And I want to talk about how you actually escaped, got out, got kicked out. What was the whole story with that at 13? Okay, so when I was 13, I stood up to my stepfather, Stephen, uh, one of the first times I did, and that resulted in him violently dragging me up by my hair, up the stairs, and then trying to push me into this bathroom stall to beat me. And so he got out his belt, and he was, like, so enraged uh, that uh, normally, like, he would fold the belt with the buckle in his hand and then hit me with the loop end of it. But he was so enraged that he was just like beating on me with, with the buckle side. Oh. And I was like, I had blood streaming all over my face. And uh, so I finally stood up to him. I turned around and I just socked it to him and knocked his glasses off his face. And I mean, I was still a tiny little thing. I was like 13. So, I mean, you know, I mean, my son is 13. And I mean, like, I can pick him up like this, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I got him at least, you know. And uh, he's blind as a bat without his glasses. He had like these old, really thick you know lenses and so when they shattered on the ground uh he couldn't really find me so i just fucked off and i went back to the kitchen i was like well if i just keep doing my chores and he'll be busy trying to find himself a new pair of glasses or calling around to for somebody to drive him somewhere no but what he did is he called the other adults that were out witnessing and then said oh uh my son has been possessed by a demon uh he attacked me for no reason oh. and he just started beating on me so they all came, pinned me down on the ground, 
and carried me off like six people because I was fighting and screaming and biting every step of the way. And then they brought me into this uh, solitary confinement room that they had where all the windows were like uh, screwed shut with boards of wood. And in that room, there was like one shelf with some books, uh, a mattress, uh, a bucket of water for cleaning or defecation or whatever, and a table and a lamp. That's it. So they brought me in there and then they were kneeling on me for, I don't know, from 11 o'clock in the morning until way past dinner time. So eight, nine, 10 hours, 11 hours, no idea. Uh, but yeah, and they didn't let me get up the entire time. So I, I yeah, everything that would come out of you in that time came out. Mm. And uh, at the end, they decided, okay, I well, I stopped fighting after at some point, and I just kind of passed out and just kind of let it happen, kind of. And at some point, they're like, okay, we're done. Uh, clean yourself up. And I mean, I, I had thoroughly soiled myself from, from the waist down. Yeah. And they didn't even bring me like a clean pair of pants or anything. They're like, here's a bucket of water. You can clean, you can wash your pants. You can hang them up to dry, and then you can sleep there. And, uh, yeah, and then they brought me like a sheet and that was it, you know, so I was sleeping on this mattress with no, no covers. And then I used the sheet that was normally for the mattress to cover myself with. And I washed my pants and my underwear as best as I could and, uh, hung them on the chair to dry. And, uh, the next morning when I woke up, they were still wet, of course. And at some point, uh, I think around midnight or something, my mother snuck up when the adults, other adults were already sleeping. Maybe it was already one, two in the morning. I have no idea. I had no way of telling the time. And she brought me like a piece of bread and some water and she was crying. And she's like, just admit that you attacked Steve. And I'm like, no, I didn't do anything. And it's like, you know, and it's like, you know, he's fucking crazy. You know, he likes to beat me. And he's like, yeah, I don't believe you. I don't believe one word you're saying. And then she just left and then just locked me back in the room. <sighs> And I honestly thought about overpowering her because I could have, but with what, you know, with wet pants, with no shoes, no socks, uh, no money. And I mean, we're talking about like in, in, in Switzerland up there in that altitude, we were like in about 1500 meters up from sea level. So we're talking like three, four degrees at night, even mm. in, in autumn. So I would have not survived the night, you know? So what you do, you, you stay, you know, and, uh, at some point, I think maybe about two or three weeks later, one of my friends, uh, he, he snuck the key while everyone was out. And then he got like some backpacks and some clothes and he got some, he found like, I think 20 or 30 Swiss francs in his mother's wallet. And then we made a run for it at the age of 13. Yeah. You both went together. Yeah. He was 15. I was 13. We were living in this commune in um, a place called Legiette in the French part of Switzerland. And we walked down the mountain as the crow flies. And this is actually coming to think about it, like in, in hindsight, this was a massively brave thing to do because we're talking about like a mountain that's going down like this. And uh, once we noticed that uh, the adults found, uh, realized that I was missing, that he was missing, of course, they made a search troop for us. So they were like driving on the mountain roads looking for us. So we couldn't take the road. So we had to just go as the crow flies. And and some of these things were so steep. We're like literally like with the backpack on and then like hugging a tree, swinging around and then estimating the next tree further down the hill. And then like just kind of letting ourselves fall into the next tree and then grabbing it again like that. Oh, my gosh. So uh, we could have easily 
very, very severely injured ourselves, if not worse, on the this descent down the mountain. <laughs> but uh, we made it down, um, albeit with lots of bruises and scrapes and scratches and uh, some cuts, but uh, no broken bones, so yay. And then uh, the first night we slept in this uh, pear plantation. It was super cold at night because it was already like... Uh, must have been just before or just after my 14th birthday. No, it must have been just before because I was still 13. So it must have been August. Sometimes I, the exact timing is a bit fuzzy still in my mind. Yeah. But the gist of what happened is it was already quite cold at night. It was the end of summer. Uh, so we're eating like these unripe pears and unripe corn and getting also diarrhea from it. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're walking and shitting ourselves and eating and whatever. And uh, then the second night we spent on this campsite and uh, then at some point the security were like, oh, no, you can't. There was like this uh, like swimming area. So we went there and tried to sleep under some trees with our jackets. And then the security guys like, no, you can't sleep here. So we ended up sleeping in uh, a toilet on the highway for uh, disabled people because it's nice and white so the two of us could lie down next to each other uh with the, like the toilet basin and yeah pretty disgusting and actually then uh, the police showed up and this boggles the mind to this day they let us go they're like you can't sleep here they asked us for id we didn't have id and then uh we kind of explained to them in broken french oh we're lost and we're looking for the campsite and whatever and then the police are like, duh, the campsite is just like right over there, like a kilometer from here. So then they didn't even offer to drive us back to the camping. And we're, and we're obviously minors. So they're just like, yeah, the camping's back that way, but you can't sleep here. You have to go over there. And we're like, okay, whatever. So then we uh, ended up spending the rest of the night, like just trying to keep ourselves warm by walking. And around maybe eight, nine in the morning, we ended up in Sion at this very big supermarket. And this was like, uh, I don't know, like you have Walmart in America, but I mean, not that big, of course, but something where you have like, you know, everything like camping gear and food and whatnot. And we had this big backpack. So then I had this idea. I was like, I'm so fucking cold. We're not going to survive another night. Uh, we need to do something about this. So, and I was the braver of the two, actually, even though I was younger, My, the older one, he was a bit of a, yeah, he always let me do the dirty work. <laughs> So um, my idea was uh, behind where all the trucks are um, doing all the deliveries, there's like oh, this hedge there. So we could hide all our clothes in behind the hedge where no one would see it. And then I take the backpack and hold it with the straps down so that the backpack would kind of just like hang like that, but it would look like it's full, right? That was my thinking. So I walk into the shop like that and he, my friend, he's following me. And then I make a beeline for the for the camping area. And I, I take out like a bunch of different tents and a bunch of different sleeping bags. And I put them on the floor and I'm, uh, you know, looking at them. And while I'm looking at them, I had like this pocket knife. And so I'm like, you know, cutting out the tag and then like shoving the tag somewhere else into the into some other sleeping bags, or whatever. So I get one sleeping bag in. I get the fucking tent in and I'm about to shove a second sleeping bag in and security is coming up. And I'm like, ah, fuck. But luckily, he first goes for my friend, 
And he's like uh, talking to him in French, and then he's like, "I don't speak French." And then I look at him, and it's like, "Yeah, sorry, dude, uh, we're on we're on vacation, you know." And I I just out of spur of the moment said, "Oh yeah, we're I think I said we're from like Texas or something like that." Something. Yeah. It's like yeah, as if he would know what a Texan sounds like. So I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, we're from Texas, and we're sleeping over on the on the couch." He's like, "Yeah, you know," and then in the really broken English, he's like, "Yeah, you know, you cannot uh, you cannot take the bag in uh, the shop. You need leave it on reception, you know, like this." Oh. I'm like, "Okay, sure," and I'm like, every step of the way, I was like, "Yeah, he's we're we're done, we're done," you know. So he's like, so I close the bag, and then and then I tell my friend, "It's like, hey." be nice and clean up this mess. And I'm like, really sorry. I'm like, really sorry. I wanted to see which sleeping bag is better. And he's like, oh, that's no problem, you know? So, and there's a tent and a sleeping bag in this fucking backpack, not paid for. And then he walks me over uh, to the to this information center. And then he knocks on the glass door. Then the woman opens it and he talks to her in French. And then she's like smiling at me. It's like, okay, no problem. So she takes the bag from me and just puts it there. Yeah. And then she's like, yeah. So when you go shopping, then you go around, you, you pass the register, then you can come and get it. Jeez. I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Right. And so, so we're going past the register. And my friend, he's like, Hey, just let's just run for it. Let's just run. They, they know they they've already called the police. The police are on the way. He's like super paranoid, making me paranoid, but she's like smiling and waving, like, come, come. I'm like, yeah, if I run for it now, then, then they'll be really suspicious. So it's like, fuck it. I'm just going to go. And I'm like, I'm white and I'm like, my hands are shaking. I just like, I go over there. She just gives me the bag and that was it. And we walked out wow. and we had a sleeping bag in a tent that night. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's wild. Later, when I called my parents because I was I was really 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 sick, I was like, "Yeah, I'll go back. I'll come back to the cult, but you need to find me a place to live with my grandparents or something." And they're like, "Okay, you can come back to the cult. You go willingly back into the isolation room uh, until we find a place for you. You're not allowed to speak to anybody, but uh, you won't. You, I mean, we'll we'll give you normal food." Um, you won't have to participate in any of the chores. We'll let you shower in the evening when all the other children are asleep. We'll sneak you out and you can have showers. So I made like this negotiation with them for a little bit of a less severe, um, horrible life. And yeah, about uh, another six weeks, I endured that in the isolation. So you went, you did and go then, back. Yeah, in the middle of the night, they, they came. Yeah, I had to. I was, I, 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 there was no way to survive, you know? Yeah. They made me return the fucking, I, they asked me where I got it. And I was like, yeah, I, I stole it. And I mean, they were like, what? You stole it? It's like, yeah, I stole it. And so they actually drove me back to Sion and made me go up to the people where I stole it. And, and then hand it back to them and apologize. Fucking hell. But it was so funny because the woman recognized me and she was just looking at me like, it's like, I'm just like little 13 year olds, like a grand larceny. <laughs> <laughs> So then how long, how long were you out? How long did you escape before you decided to go back? A few days? Yeah, like four days. <laughs> no, it was, yeah, I mean, it was pretty miserable. So, and then you're back in isolation. Yeah, exactly. And then I was another like six weeks. Oh, wow. I spent my 14th birthday in an isolation. Yeah. That I remember. That's why I know it was roughly around my birthday. Okay. Did they follow through on their end? Yeah, yeah. They then uh, drove me around Germany for the longest time from hotel to hotel and trying to look for a boarding school. And yeah, at the end, they put me in this half private boarding school that was paid for by my grandparents. Yeah. And then I was there. That was another fucked up story. So um, 
this boarding school had an eighth grade, but they told my parents that when the eighth grade is finished, there won't be an eighth grade in that boarding school anymore because everyone's migrating to ninth grade. So if I don't learn German in time, I would have to leave the boarding school again in half a year. Oh. And I didn't speak a word of fucking German, like zero. And having almost no prior education, I mean, that was like, wow. But my parents didn't give a fuck. So they're like, no, no, yeah, he can go here. And uh, if he if he fails, then he's an asshole, basically. So I didn't make the eighth grade. I didn't pass the eighth grade. So then as a punishment, uh, my stepfather put me in this trailer in the dead middle of winter uh, in a public school in the south of Germany. And I was literally living on the side of rail of railroad tracks. And I could only go to the bathroom during the day when the Greek restaurant across the street was open. And in the night, I had to just go shit on the tracks or whatever. And yeah, and he just made sure my life was a living hell, like uh, almost never brought any gas for heating or like uh, basically he would bring me some flour and some salt, and some oats and be like, make yourself something with that. Oh, my gosh. You you want to you want to you don't want to serve God. Well, this is what not serving God is like, you know? Yeah. How long were you in there? Four or five months. How? And then from there, I got, I found, they found another boarding school, which was like a youth detention center. And they, they told, they actually told the people that I was a severe delinquent, that I was super violent and everything like that. So I ended up in like this, uh, internet in this boarding school for like proper psych, psychotic children, you know? So like the first night I was greeted there by, uh, somebody shitting on my bed. So I mean, this is the kind of hell that uh, was in that boarding school. And actually, I took that part of my story, which has happened in real life, and I turned it into this uh, very bizarre tale of woe that happens in my book in The Monsters That Kiss You Goodnight, because there I just then completely went off in a different direction in the book. Because after all, it's a horror fiction based on, I mean, all this, all the abuse and the stuff that happened in the cult and all that, that's all for real. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was that. And then, uh, I ran actually, then, uh, what happened was I, I got into some very bad trouble with some bad people because my parents wouldn't give me any pocket money. So, I mean, of course you get to know the local dealers and then you start, you know, handling, you know, and then I pissed off the wrong people. And then all of a sudden was like, okay, we're going to kill this motherfucker. So I ran. Wow. And then I just disappeared off the face of the earth for about seven, eight months. I was just like nowhere to be found. And then I called my stepfather, uh, who was living in France at the time. And I was like, yeah, okay, fuck it. Um, I'm done. I, I don't know what to do, you know? And he's like, do you want to serve God again? I'm like, hell no, because you guys are going to Africa and I, I still want to go to school and uh, I just don't want to be in a fucking psychotic fucking boarding school for insane people. I mean, there must be something where I can do like, why don't you pay me like a little Mansard somewhere or like a little studio and I can go to public school in Switzerland. And he's like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll talk about it. So I had some money. So I went to uh, I went to Basel to the youth hostel and the youth hostel was full there. So I went to Solitern and Solitern. I met this street musician by the name of Brian Robert Pierce, who uh, was sitting at the bank at the riverside uh, playing his guitar and he was singing the song called Little Black Sheep. And I just stood there frozen. I was just like, wow, that's me. And that's also, I think. 
I'm not sure. I think I had tears coming in my eyes, but I, I fought it for real. But uh, I, I think I almost cried. I, I'm pretty sure. I almost actually cried. And then I sat next to him and I was like, oh, yeah, I also, you know, because in the cult, we were also like busking all the time. My earliest memories of busking was actually with, with Steven. Uh, we'd go out like almost every day in the summertime, start playing on the terraces outside where people are eating. And I'd play the bongos. He'd play his guitar, singing all these songs about making love to Jesus and all this really fucking embarrassing shit. And then I'd pass the hat and we'd make maybe three, four, five hundred dollars in one day because, I mean, he was a good singer and I was a pretty damn good percussionist for my age. And and we'd never spend one penny of it because it was God's money. So, like, you know, we'd be walking around for 12 hours and I'd be like, hey, let's go to McDonald's. Let's eat something. I'm starving. He's like, no, no, no. How dare like how dare I want to steal God's money right, it's like, just to eat. Dude, we're working for this. <laughs> yeah. So I met the street musician in Solitaire. And then instead of waiting for my stepfather to show up on Sunday, I fucked off with him. Uh, I bought myself a pair of bongos, uh, and then we started making money together. Oh, wow. And I was already, I already knew how to, to busk because of Steven and, you know, because I was doing that already since the age of like eight, nine, 10, 11. So I knew perfectly well how much money you could make and all that. So yeah. And then we went to Lucerne and then I called my stepfather and I just told him one, one thing. He picked up the phone. I was just like, fuck you. And I just hung up the phone. And uh, I became self-employed since then. And since then, I'm, uh, yeah, a full-time musician, performer, actor, writer, activist, father. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So you just took your life into your own hands and you said, I'm going to do what I know and what I love, which is music. And you were just a traveling musician for how long before you put down roots? Uh, yeah, I was basically like a bohemian for the next 10 years or nine years until I became a father of my first kid. Yeah, and I just traveled all over Europe with my guitar, my backpack, my drum. I had a djembe. I still actually have it. I use it still for performing. And yeah, I did like a shit ton of stuff. Like I, I was like two years homeless on the beaches of Spain and I was acting in some TV show in Belgium. I was, I did a brief stint as a model when I was slightly younger and a bit more handsome. Uh, so <laughs> 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 Wait, let me, uh, this is funny here. I, I have a singer right now. She's at the house. Uh, she was like, who is this? She didn't recognize it. I don't know if you can see that, but that's, that's me when I was 18. Oh my so goodness. <laughs> I look a bit different. <laughs> <laughs> well, rough lifestyle gives a good body. You oh know? my gosh, Phil. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the consciousness side, how you were able to pull yourself out of this. I know you have a family now, and it seems like you're doing really well, and you're actually advocating for survivors. You're trying to change laws. You're really trying to make a difference. You are making a difference. So what are those things that you're up to, and how can people support you in that? Well, um, I want to, again, express express my utmost respect for all you survivors out there who have gone through horrible stuff and are active about it, are talking to the media, are talking to politicians, are talking to lawyers, are talking to lawmakers, all of that. But we need so much more than that. We need group statements. We need group lawsuits. We need group affidavits. We need 
to make this uh, an issue in the U in the UN in the UNO, we need to have uh, budgets for this of being able to to address these politicians and saying, "Hey, look, this is a global problem that needs to be addressed. It cannot be that a German citizen can go to India and molest his stepson and rape him, and then travel to Switzerland and rape some other girls, and then go back to Germany and then just get away scot free." Mm -hmm. This needs to be an internationally uh, dealt with problem that we have international laws that apply internationally to this so that if there's a child abuser, no matter what their race is, what their nationality is, where the crime was committed, that they be held in front of an international court and put the fuck in prison. Mm -hmm. And not that people can just get away because how is it that like in Scotland, they don't have the statutes of limitations. So people get punished for doing crimes like that. But then in Germany, a German citizen doesn't get punished with that. I mean, that's just not fucking fair that basically a victim, the decision of whether a victim gets compensation or uh, retribution for what they experience all boils down to what the nationality of the perpetrator is. I mean, that's just horrible, mm -hmm. right? So to all of you out there, if you know politicians, if you know lawyers, if you can in any way, shape, or form help this agenda get onto the international uh, spotlight, feel free to contact me. My website is, will be uh, there in the... The description, yeah. The description, yeah, philipseibel.com. Uh, I am fully 100% only supported by my art, my music. I am making actually now uh, a very interesting uh, project. It's um, an art, uh, it's called Art Recovery, where uh, victims can uh, display their art online on my website at my-print.ch, which will also be linked on my other homepage. And I also just bought recently um, a, a, direct to a, a, a direct to foil printing machine. So we can make art uh, that goes directly on the foil and then it gets pressed directly onto shirts. So we can print the art of survivors and we can make custom t-shirts, custom leather jackets, custom hoodies, whatever, basically like literally there's nothing we can't do with this printer. And uh, if you have like something you would like to customize or have a message, like we are going to do a new campaign, it's called Look, Don't Touch, which I've also made a song about, which I've sent you. Uh, and it's a campaign uh, against molestation uh, of women, especially in public transport and out in clubbing, that uh, looking does not equal touch. It's quite obvious. So there's a lot of things happening. And yes, of course, I have uh, my book out, which you can buy. I have also music on my website that you can listen to or buy. And of course, if you would really like to sponsor me trying to get my parents in Germany to justice and the sheer volume of work that this uh, needs, uh, I have also my, my bank account on my website where people can donate. I honestly prefer as a musician and as an artist, if we would actually buy something and not just donate money, because that for me, it means a lot more. That means also like it gives me validation that what I'm doing as an artist and as a musician is also appreciated and not just the activism that I yeah. do. Yeah. 
Wow, you're really doing a lot of things over there, Phil. It's amazing. It's inspiring. I love that you are just working in so many different facets and helping survivors and giving people that opportunity to create something beautiful. We have so many survivors who come on here and say that the way to healing is through their art. And so I imagine that's extremely validating for them as well to be able to see that come to life and and make something that means so much to them. So great job on everything that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone's out there watching this who who wants their art to be uh, displayed on my website, uh, we also do pay out. So, for example, if uh, somebody buys some of your art on the, uh, from our, our gallery and has a shirt printed, then uh, we also will pay out a royalty to the artist who uh, designed that oh, wow. piece of work. That's so great. this is also like uh, I want to build a community of of people helping each other. So. Uh, you bring the art, we bring the clients or vice versa, or maybe you have art and a client, but you don't have a good printer to actually make, uh, make your visions come to life. But we can do that for you here in Switzerland. And uh, yeah, everything else, well, one step at a time. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, that's so awesome. Can we get your Linda Listen moment, your sassy statement as a viral video with the toddler goes, or inspiration, either one? when you come when you come to a topic like that there is there's just so much to be said and so little done in the world that i think honestly uh sometimes actions speak louder than words and i i myself i am much more of a visual person than a a spoken person so if you really want to know and see who I am and what I'm about, just go into my website and listen to some of the songs and look at some of the artwork and uh, maybe inspire yourself to inspire others or I don't know. Yeah, it sounded to me, it sounded like there's two in there. Linda, listen, we need some accountability and retribution for these survivors. And Linda, listen, you can make art and you can heal. I like the last one. Yeah, you can. Definitely, art is a definitely a good healing process, and uh, yeah, I think uh, we will be seeing a lot more of uh, fabulous artists and singers and uh, wonderful things happening very soon on my homepage. That's so awesome. Thank you so much, Phil, for coming on and sharing your story. I know those details can be hard to recount. I know that a lot of people will feel validated by hearing your story and feel seen in their own special way and so i really appreciate you coming on and sharing yeah my absolute pleasure and i i mostly i do this to hopefully inspire other people to also come forward and i mean i i've come a long way too the first few interviews i i I gave i had to constantly like just stop the interview because i would just uh break down crying and just start shaking and all that yeah and it was it was a long long road for me too but i mean i'm also a bit of a veteran now with the interviews so for me it's uh I can, yeah, I just try to concentrate on, on the actual spoken word of it and not really, and not truly, not, not try to have it come too close to me. And then it kind of works, you know, but yeah, I, I, I want to honestly say one last thing, just because I might not seem very moved by the things I say doesn't mean that, that it's any less horrible or that it has any less significance in my life or what happened to me. That's just my way of dealing it. 
Yeah, of course. And like we mentioned earlier, people, yeah, people process things in their own ways. And sometimes I do the same thing when I tell my story and I've really only told it once on one episode here. It's like hidden in the vaults of C2C. If you've seen it, you know, but yeah, it's it's easier in my case to dissociate and to just tell the story instead of really feel it. And that's something that I'm working on is reconnecting with my emotions. But, you know, it's a process and it's okay. And we all have our own ways of doing things. And so, yeah, I appreciate no matter how you share it, you shared it and it's out there and it's very helpful for people. I think that's very interesting what you said about the reconnecting to the emotions. Like I've been learning uh, much more to reconnect with my emotions. Like what is it for me when I'm angry or what is it for me when I'm sad or when I'm happy? And there's so many beautiful emotions out there, like like a, how a song can touch you or make you cry or how how a child smiling at you can just make your day or how sometimes just your friend just says the right word to you and then it just makes you feel really warm inside. So there's so many nice feelings to concentrate on that, I mean, so who cares if there's some parts of our life that we disassociate ourselves from or refuse to come to terms with or refuse to feel anything about. We are replacing those feelings with something much nicer. So at the end of the day, that's maybe also a recovery in and of itself that we we learn to not let ourselves be so overpowered by things that we have no control mm -hmm. over. Yeah. And it just takes time. It just takes time and awareness and the consciousness. That's why we say the cults to consciousness, the awareness of coming back to self and finding who you truly are without the influence of someone telling you who to be and who they want you to be really. So with that, guys, make sure you go check out Phil's website. We'll put everything in the description below. His Instagram, Phil underscore Seibel. You can check that out as well. And yeah, definitely go over there and support his art. I love what you're doing over there, Phil. Phil it's so awesome. And do you have any final thoughts before we go? Um, yes, I actually, I have already some artists, uh, that I am right now as we speak, uh, well, not at this particular second, of course, but I am, um, working on this new website on a gallery called my-print.ch, which I just mentioned before where we're doing the whole design things. And I already have one of my first artists who is going to be featured there, who is already featured. There are already art pieces of her on that website that you can check out. And I will be adding more and more and more. And if any of you out there would like to also have your art on this place, I really want to make this like a little, like a little, um, bubble where people can just bring their art and in any cat category, doesn't matter what. I mean, obviously not something that's like super horrible or perverted or something, and then we won't accept it, but like anything that's like, you know, you, you know what I mean? Just something that's not just fucking wrong, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, a lot of my art is dark too, but it's not perverted. It's not wrong. Yeah. You know, you get what I yeah. mean, right? I mean, there's, if you go on the internet, there's plenty of horrible shit, but, uh, anyway, so this is, uh, a, a center, uh, my, my minus print.ch will be an art center for other people, for survivors like me, like you who just want to, uh, uh, have other people appreciate their art or, you know, maybe even at some point down the road, make a little extra cash. And the idea is really to build up a community that supports each other. So uh, on my my normal website, philzeibel.com, there is contact where you can contact me. You can send me an email. 
And uh, if I deem your picture suitable, then I will, of course, I will put your name and I will, I will start really make, I, I would really like to make this a uh, beautiful collection of, uh, of art from all around the world. So feel free to participate. Amazing. That's so great. Yeah, definitely check that out, guys. And if you are interested in this, in supporting this podcast, you can do so by getting some of our merch as well over at ColtsToConsciousness.com under the merch tab. We have some holiday sweaters over there. And if you want to come to Costa Rica with us, you can. We still have some spots left to do something a little bit more lighthearted. Come hang out with us so we can adventure together and just relax. And if you want to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. And if you like this video, I will put two more down here that you're going to want to check out. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.